0: In alhamdulillah, nahmaduhu who are Nesta Inu, who are Nesta of Ferro, when I would be him in Shururi and Fusina, or Minseyi Ati Amalina, when you had the Hilla wa feller Movil Lala, or when you little feller had the Allah, was Hado and La, Ila, Ila, who are the Hula Shari Kala, was So today, in ta'ala, we're going to begin the book Kitabut Tawheed. Of a Sheikh Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahhab, rahimahullah taala, and this is one of the great books that the Sheikh he authored, and in its most part, it speaks about or it revolves around the topic of Tawheed al-Uluhiyyah, regarding singling out our worship to Allah subhanahu wa taala. So it explains the various mannerisms or the various aspects of Tawheed Al-Uluhiyya, and similarly, those things that oppose and go against that Tawheed, the types of things that would negate or they would cause a deficiency in the Tawheed of a person in his obedience to Allah. So firstly then, we'll briefly mention something about the author of this book, so that everybody is acquainted With the author and this particular book that we are going to study insha'Allah So the author is Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab Rahimahullah ta'ala And you've heard of him uh, plentifully before Many of his books are studied and taught So Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab ibn Sulaiman al-Musharrafi al-Tamimi al-Najdi this is the author of this book, Kitab al-Tawheed. fil-ayna sana. He was born in the year 1115 Hijri. In the year 1115 Hijri. 1115 Hijri. And what are we in currently? Currently we are in 1435. So you can work out what that date is. Currently, we are in 1435 Hijri. And the Sheikh, Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, was born in 1115 Hijri. And he was born into a household of knowledge. He was born into a household of knowledge and status. So his father, Abu Abdul Wahhab a qadiyan. His father, the father of the Sheikh, he himself was a scholar and a judge. The father of a Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, Rahimahullah, his father was a scholar and a judge, and that was therefore Abdul Wahhab. The author here is Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. So Abdul Wahhab he was a scholar and a judge himself. وَجَدُّهُ And the grandfather of al-Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, Suleyman, his grandfather Suleyman, كان Ulamaiha, His grandfather Suleyman, <coughs> He was the mufti of the land of Najd, the area where Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab rahimahullah, is from, he his grandfather was actually the mufti of that area and the head of the scholars of that area. He was the mufti of that area and the head of the scholars of that area. وَأَعْمَامُهُ وَأَبْنَاءُ أَعْمَامِهِ كَانُوا أَهْلُ وَعِلْمُ On top of that, his uncles, his uncles, and his first cousins, the sons of his uncles, all of them were people of status and rank. They were all people of status and knowledge. They were all people of status and knowledge. This particular area where Sheikh Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahhab, ta'ala was raised up in that area of Najd, that area and the surrounding areas at that time, they were filled with scholars. They were filled with many scholars. And they had scholars from other areas and other countries that they were also connected to. As Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab, rahimahullah ta'ala, it is mentioned in his biography that he memorized the Qur'an before the age of 10. Before the age of 10, he had memorized all of the Qur'an. And he had studied fiqh and tafsir and hadith at the hands of his father in his country and the other scholars. So the Sheikh, al-Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, rahimahullah ta'ala, studied from his father and he studied from the other scholars of his country. It is mentioned that he learnt very quickly. He learnt very quickly from his father and from the other scholars. And he was sharp and precise. And he would discuss with them. And he was very pleasing to the scholars. The scholars were pleased with him. His father was pleased with him and amazed with him at his ability. Then after that it's mentioned... That Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab, rahimahullah, desired further knowledge and further studying. So he continued in that study of the Qur'an and the Sunnah and the various books of the Sunnah. And he studied the books of Sheikh uh, al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah and the student of Sheikh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, al-Imam ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahumullah, that he studied their books, and he took the knowledge from them, particularly in the books of Aqidah. So this is something briefly regarding Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab Rahimahullah. His household was a household of knowledge. He memorized the Quran before the age of ten, it's mentioned. He learnt the knowledge from his father, from his uncles, from his other scholars at that time. And after that after he had learnt the knowledge from his own area and his own land, then it's mentioned how he traversed into some of the other areas of the other scholars, into Iraq and other places, and he met with those other scholars and took knowledge from them also. And this is the way of the people of Hadith, the scholars of Hadith, the Muhaddithun, this was their way, that they would take the knowledge from the scholars of their land, they would take the knowledge from the scholars of their land, and once they had done that, then they would travel out to the other scholars in the other lands, and also take knowledge from them. So, as Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, rahimahullah, he took the knowledge from whomsoever was available in his own land, and then after that he traveled out to seek knowledge from elsewhere also. However, it is mentioned that at the time of a Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, rahimahullah ta'ala, there was widespread innovation occurring also. And there was widespread shirk occurring also, whereby the people, they would go to the graves, and they would go to the deceased, and they would go to the shrines, and they would seek their needs from them. So this great degree... Of misguidance existed around that time. So when Sheikh Muhammad, rahimahullah, saw this reality of the situation around him, of the misguidance that some of the people were upon in terms of seeking intercession from the deceased, etc., then, as Sheikh Al fawzan mentions regarding him, عند ذلك لم يسع Sheikh Muhammadan, rahimahullah, as-sukut عن التغيير والإنكار والدعوة إلى الإصلاح والعودة إلى كتاب الله وسنة رسوله صلى الله عليه وسلم وتصفية العقيدة الإسلامية مما علق بها وغير وجهها وبهجتها وعكر صفوها ونظرتها then the Sheikh mentions that it was not possible for Sheikh Muhammad ibn abdul wahaab to remain silent upon that it was not possible seeing the reality of the affairs around him and some of the misguidances that the people were upon. It wasn't possible for the sheikh to remain silent upon that. Rather the sheikh he had to reject that and he had to clarify that. And he had to call to rectification and correction of these affairs. To call the people back to the Quran and the Sunnah. To purify the correct Aqidah purify that from what had been attached to it, from the falsehood, to purify it and make it clear from those affairs that the people had attached to this aqidah which is not from it. So, he took a resolute and firm stance with regards to that, to call to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with wisdom and to admonish the people and to bring that clarity to them, to revive the sunnah to them. So this is the reality that was occurring at the time of Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab that there was much misguidance around at that time with regards to the shirk with regards to people seeking the intercession from the graves and the shrines and so the Sheikh he took it uh, took the responsibility of clarifying those affairs and that's where you see that he wrote many of these great books Many of these great books that the sheikh wrote with regards to clarifying the correct aqidah of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah and nullifying the shirk and all of that falsehood. So, you see this great book, Kitab al Tawheed, as an example of that. You see other books like Kashf al Shubuhat clarifying the doubts of those people who used to bring doubts regarding grave worship. They used to try to prove that it is permissible try to prove that intercession is permissible. So a Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab, in that great book, Kashf al-Shubuhat, exposed their doubts, exposed the falsehood of their methodology and the doubts that they were bringing to try and prove their false aqeedah. And other books, the Sitta Mawadi' min Al seerah al-Nabawiyyah, the six events from the prophetic seerah of the Prophet that is another book where he wrote about the seerah But also made a point of picking out aspects or stories about aqeedah It is a book of seerah which focuses on stories of aqeedah From the seerah of the Prophet Sallam. Then there sitta al al-usool-sittah, al-qawaid-al-arba' Thalath-al-usool Many of these books, the three fundamental principles The four principles, the six principles All of these books that he wrote in clarification of the correct aqidah, the correct methodology and principles of Ahl-Sunnah, to reject and to clarify the falsehood of what the people were upon at that time. So this is one of those great works, kitab Ta'uhid. And these books, the scholars, they advise with them continuously. Always, if you ask the scholars, what are the books that we should begin with, where does a student of knowledge start to learn the knowledge from, then you will not find any scholar answering, except that somewhere within the answer, you will always find mentioning of these types of books, Kitab al and the three fundamental principles, and the four principles, these types of books, the scholars always mention them as the opening types of books, that you learn at the beginning to build yourself and your foundations, in the understanding of this religion. So after that then, after that brief understanding of who the sheikh is, and who the author is, then we'll mention, before we go into the opening section of Kitab Al-Tawheed, a brief introduction from al Sheikh Salih al-Fawzan, Hafizahullah Ta'ala. Because for the most part, during these lessons, we will be using the explanation of al sheikh Salih al-Fawzan, Hafidahullah <laughs> ta'ala, because it is one of the clearest and easiest explanations for the people to understand. So, Sheikh al-Fawzani says, فَإِنَّ عَقِيدَةَ التَوْحِيدِ هي أَسَاسُ الدِّينِ That the عَقِيدَةَ of تَوْحِيد, that is the foundation of the religion. وَكُلُّ الْأَوَامِرِ وَالنَّوَاهِي وَالْعِبَادَاتِ وَالطَاعَاتِ كُلُّهَا مُؤَسَسَةً عَلَى عَقِيدَةِ التَّوْحِيدِ and all of the commands, and all of the prohibitions, all of the commandments in the religion, all of the prohibitions in the religion, all of the worships, all of the obediences, all of them are built upon this aqida, this tawheed, this foundation. Allah ma'na shahada an la ilaha And this aqida, this tawheed that we are talking about that all of the religion it is based upon it is the shahada the meaning of the shahada la ilaha illallah a person who understands that then that is based and revolved around the core of this tawhid and aqida wa anna muhammadan rasulullah that muhammad sallallahu is the messenger of allah min these two testifications that are the first pillar of Islam, that is the aqida. that is the Tawheed, that is the foundation, upon which all of the rest of the religion is built upon. فَلَا يَصِحْحُ عَمَلٌ وَلَا تُقْبَلُ عِبَادَةٌ وَلَا يَنْجُوْ أَحَدٌ مِنَ النَّارُ وَيَدْخُلُ الْجَنَّةِ إِلَّا إِذَا أَتَى بِهَاذَا التَّوْحِيدِ وَصَحَّهَا Aqida. So nobody, the Sheikh says, No one's action will be accepted. No actions can be accepted. No worship can be accepted. Or rather, no action can be correct. No action can be correct, and no worship can be accepted. And nobody can be saved from the fire or enter the paradise, except if they bring or they practice this Tawheed. They are upon this Tawheed, and they correct their Aqidah. That will be the means of them entering into paradise and being saved. That will be the means for their worship to be accepted and their actions to be correct. That they are upon that sound, proper foundation of Tawheed and Aqeedah. وَلِهَادَا كَانَ اهْتِمَامُ الْعُلَمَا رَحِمَهُمُ اللَّهِ فِي هَذَا الْجَانِبِ اهْتِمَامًا عَظِيمًا It is for this reason that the scholars, they gave such a great importance... To teaching this aqeedah. They gave such a great importance to this aspect of aqeedah and tawheed. Because for this aqeedah, for this foundation and this principle, that is why the messengers were sent by Allah. They were sent by Allah to teach this aqeedah and tawheed. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed His books to clarify and explain this aqeedah and tawheed. كَمَا يَأْتِي شَرْحُهُ اللَّهِ ثُمَّ فَإِنَّهُ حِينَ يُطْلَبُ مِنَ الْإِنْسَانِ أَنْ يَأْتِيَ بِبَقِيَّةِ الْأَعْمَالِ So the shaykh says when the aqeedah of a person is corrected, then after that the person is required to perform the remainder of the actions. Meaning the remainder of the actions will be built upon the correct aqidah. That is how they will be accepted and correct. فَدَلَّ عَلَىٰ أَنَّ عَقِيدَةَ التوحيد هي الأساس يجب العناية به أولا. This therefore indicates that the foundation that the importance has to be given to firstly is this Tawheed. وَقَبْلَ كُلِّ شَيْءٍ And before anything else. ثُمَّ فَإِنَّهُ يُتَوَجَّهُ إِلَى بَقِيَةِ أُمُورِ الدِّينِ العبادات. So when the person, he actualizes the Tawheed and the Aqeedah, then he can start looking towards the other aspects of the religion and the other affairs also. But the foundation is that Aqeedah and Tawheed. That's why the sheikh says the scholars, they gave so much importance to this field of Aqeedah and Tawheed. And they wrote so many books. أَلَّفُوا فِيهِ كُتُوبًا كَثِيرًا مُخْتَصَرًا وَمُطَوَّلًا They wrote many books in the field of Aqeedah, summarized or lengthy. Some of them were summarized books, and some of them were detailed books. And they wrote many in this affair of Aqeedah and Tawheedah. So here now you have a Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab upon that same methodology, giving importance to the Aqeedah and Tawheed who wrote this book, Kitab al-Tawheed, which is a selection of chapters, as you will see. A selection of chapters, approximately 60 chapters. And in every chapter, the Shaykh mentions an aspect of Tawheed, or that which opposes Tawheed. And every chapter, every single one is based upon ayat of the Qur'an and a hadith of the Sunnah, or narrations of the Sahaba. Every chapter you will find that. There is not a single chapter where the sheikh just speaks from himself. Every chapter is ayat and it is a hadith. And you'll find that, you'll notice that, every single chapter begins like that. That's what it is. An ayah from the Qur'an, a hadith from the sunnah, a narration from one of the salaf, that's what all of these chapters are. This is the explanation of a Shaykh al-Fawzan. The actual book Kitab al-Tawheed is barely 10 pages long. You can get the book in maybe 10 or 15 pages, the actual book. Because the actual book, Kitab At-Tawheed, all it is, is ayat from the Quran, ahadith from the sunnah, and narrations from the salaf. 10 or 15 pages, the whole of these 60 chapters. But here now you have the explanation of all of those chapters. But if you were to look at just Kitab At-Tawheed by itself, get a copy of Kitab At-Tawheed by itself, then you'll see every chapter in ten or fifteen pages, all the chapters are there, all of it full of ayat, ahadith, ayat, ahadith. That's all these chapters are. So not any nobody can argue with this. Nobody can come along and argue with this and say no, this is a Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab, his opinions. These aren't his opinions, these are ayat of the Quran, every chapter. When the Sheikh mentions something, he says such and such is from Tawheed. Why? Straight away an ayah from the Quran to tell you why. Such and such is from shirk. Why? Straight away a hadith from the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ to show why such and such is from shirk. So there is no such thing as chapters where the Shaykh is just giving his opinions about things. This book is full of ayat and a hadith directly proving to you the aspects of Tawheed and the prohibitions against shirk. To such an extent that some people out there who have been taught in particular ways and they've been told to be warned from a Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab they've been taught to be warned against this man it is mentioned that on some occasions this book Kitab al-Tawhid was given to some people without the name of the author on it it was given to some people who hated Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab and they had been taught upon their methodology in their land to be warned against this man burn his books don't look at them at all then it is mentioned by some of the scholars that a group of them were given Kitab Al-Tawheed without the name of the author. Instead, all that was written was a Sheikh At-Tamimi or something along those lines. At-Tamimi is one of his tribe names at the end. All that they wrote was as Sheikh At-Tamimi, something of this nature. So they didn't know that this is Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, the one that they've been warned against, that scholar that is from the, as they say, the Wahhabis, etc. So they were given this book Kitab Al-Tawheed and they read it and they examined it and they went through it. And at the end, when they were asked regarding it, they said, yes, it's a very good book. This particular book, this Sheikh Tamimi, whoever he is, he's written a good book. All these ayat about tawheed and what you need to do, and these ahadith about the different types of shirk and what you're not allowed to do. They said, yes, there's no problem, very good book. Then afterwards, it was made known that this is from a Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. So now that shows to you that the people don't have any grievance with the actual works. If a person has a grievance with the Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, that's another issue. But what the Shaykh has put in this book, in terms of explaining Tawheed and warning against Shirk, then nobody has an grievance with that. Nobody can have a grievance with that. These are ayat and a hadith throughout the book. So if we begin with the opening introduction that a Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab mentioned here, the opening introduction, Kitab al-Tawheed, or oh, Bismillah al rahman al rahim Kitab al-Tawheed. So the Shaykh began with Bismillah al-Rahman rahim and that, as we mentioned previously, it is the way of the scholars. The scholars, in their books, they begin with Bismillahir al-Rahman rahim and that is to follow the way of the Quran, to follow the way of the Quran, because the Quran, all of the chapters of the Quran except for one, begin with Bismillahir al-Rahman rahim and it is the way of the Prophet ﷺ in the Sunnah. So the Prophet ﷺ when he used to write letters to the other individuals, to other leaders etc. Calling them to Islam. When the Prophet ﷺ used to write those letters and send them. It is mentioned that he would begin at the start with Bismillahir Rahim. So it is from the practice of the Prophet ﷺ. On top of that it is actually the practice of the previous prophets and messengers there's another example of one of the prophets and messengers uh, one of the prophets is mentioned in the Quran who also used to or began his letter with bismillahir rahmanir rahim Sulaiman. Sulaiman, Sulaiman it's mentioned in the Quran how he began that letter to bilqis bismillahir rahmanir rahim so this is something from the way of the prophets and from the way of the Quran itself to begin with bismillahir rahmanir rahim so you see the scholars when they begin their books, they begin with that, Bismillah rahmanir rahman rahim Why or what is the meaning of that? What is the meaning behind Bismillah rahmanir rahman rahim What does it actually mean? Then as the scholars they say, The Ba is Ba'un lil-Isti'ana. Meaning that you are seeking aid and assistance in Allah. When you say Bismillah in the name of Allah, i.e. I seek aid and assistance from Allah. I seek aid and assistance in the name of Allah. You're asking Allah to aid you and assist you in whatever act it is you're about to do. So here the scholars are seeking the aid and assistance of Allah in the writing of this book that they're about to write. When you give a lecture, if you begin with bismillah rahmanir rahman rahim you're seeking aid and assistance from Allah, in the lecture you're going to deliver, or whatever your action may be, then the bismillah, it indicates you are seeking aid and assistance from Allah in that particular act. Whatever that act is that you're about to do. So Bismillah in the name of Allah, i.e. by all of the names of Allah, you call upon Allah for His aid and assistance. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Two of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from all of the names that Allah has. uh, And they indicate the attribute of mercy. So this is the reason why the scholars, they begin with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. And that is the way of the scholars in the past and to the present, when you see their books, that it begins in that manner. Somebody, or it could be said, a person may say, how come at the beginning of the book, a Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab rahimahullah ta'ala, didn't begin with the khutbah al-Hajah, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. How come he didn't begin with that full al hajah? How come he didn't mention the praise upon Allah and the messenger? How come none of that was mentioned at the beginning? He simply just said bismillahir rahmanir rahim and he started. No praise upon Allah, no praise upon the messenger. No none of those statements. Alhamdulillah wa salatu wa rasulillah. The scholars they say actually there are some prints of Kitab al-Tawheed, manuscripts, written, handwritten ones, that does actually have that beginning in it. There are some manuscripts of Kitab al-Tawheed, the actual handwritten manuscripts, where there was that opening to it. Alhamdulillah wa salatu wa ala Rasulillah, etc. All of that opening was in there too. There are some copies where that was found to be present. And even if, even if, it was not to be found, then as sheik Al-Fawzan says, beginning in the name of Allah and seeking aid and assistance in the name of Allah, then that suffices. It does suffice nevertheless for the beginning of the book, for the introduction to start into the book, in the name of Allah and seeking aid and assistance from Allah, then that suffices. But nevertheless, on top of that, as the scholars have mentioned, there are some manuscripts of Kitab Al-Tawheed where it actually does mention the additions also. So the actual title of this book, Kitabu Tawheed. Kitab in Arabic, it means something which has been put together. The word Kitab in Arabic means something which has joined up, something which has come together. Kitab, Masdaru Kataba, Wal Katb, Fil lugha Mā'nahu Al Jam'a. Summi Al Kitab, Kitaban, Li'annahu Jam'a, Al Kalimat, Wal Nusus, fa fa-fihi Mā'na Al Jam'a. So kitab in Arabic, it means to join something together. So a book, you've obviously joined things together. A multitude of words, of chapters, of chapter headings, of different sections. All of them, you put them together and you have a book. Whereas if you put them separately, you have a chapter here, a chapter there, a paragraph here, a paragraph there. When you bring all of that together, these various paragraphs, these various chapters, you bring them and you join them and it becomes a book. That's what the word Arabic book means, kitab. Something which is put together, joined together. And they use that word for other things in Arabic too. Uh, a battalion in Arabic, a battalion in an army, that is known from this root word of kitab, kutayba. Uh, it, it, known as like a battalion in the army because they are joined together. That section is joined together and they go out. So the word kitab means something which has been put together and joined together. So we have a multitude of chapters, and ideas and sections, all put together in the book. That's what a book is. Here in this instance, we have a whole selection of chapters, talking about different aspects of Tawheed, warning against Shirk, all put together into a book. Then, At-Tawheed. kitab At-Tawheed. Tawheed as we've explained before. Tawheed, it is a masdar, it is a word in Arabic that indicates singleness oneness uniqueness from the verb wahhada yuwahhidu tawhidan to make something single and one and unique that's where the word tawhid comes from then how does a person make something single and one and unique then that is done through affirmation and negation through affirmation and negation you affirm that Allah has the right to be worshipped alone, and you negate that anybody else has the right to be worshipped. That affirmation and negation is how you make something single and unique. And that's the example, the famous example we mentioned often before, that Sheikh Muhammad bin Saleh al rahimahullah ta'ala mentioned, uh, an example whereby he stated to the effect that, if there were three people in a room for example, there were three people in a room somewhere, Muhammad, Khalid, Zaid. And we say to you that Muhammad is standing up in that room. So how many people are standing up in the room? There's three of them all together, Muhammad, Amal, Khalid. And one of them is standing up, Muhammad. We say to you, Muhammad is standing up. So how many people are standing up? At least one. The reality is, it's not possible to say that it's only one. Because the other two could be standing up too. All that you've done there is affirmed, that one of them is standing up. So you know one is standing up, but what are the other two doing? You don't know. They could be standing up too. So the only way to make that one person, Muhammad for example, unique in the act of standing up, is to say that Muhammad is standing up, and nobody else is standing up. Now you know for definite in that room, only one person is standing up, because you've affirmed it to one person, and you've negated it from the rest. That is affirmation and negation to make something single and unique. So here with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, la ilaha illallah, that there is no deity worthy of worship in truth and negation. Illallah accept Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and affirmation. That's how you make tawheed, through affirmation and negation. Then with regards to this tawheed, Ashik Al-Fawzar Hafidullah then explains that it is of three types. This tawheed is then of three types. Tawheed al rububiyyah Tawheed al uluhiyya and Tawheed Al-Asma wa Sifat. As for the tawheed the first type Tawheed Al-Rububiyyah, then that is the Tawheed of the Lordship of Allah. And that is to make Allah single and unique with regards to His actions. So the actions that Allah does, that He is single and unique with. For example, creation. So Allah created the heavens and the earth alone, and nobody else participated in that. Affirm that creation to Allah, negate it from anyone else. Giving life and death, Allah gives life and death alone, and nobody else can participate in the giving of life and death. So, that is affirmed to Allah alone, negated from everyone else. The sending down of the rain, the control of the universe and what happens within it, all of that is done by Allah alone, and nobody else can participate in that. So, these are actions that only Allah can do. So, you affirm them, that these actions are for Allah alone, only Allah does them, nobody else participates or aids Allah in them, and you negate them from anybody else. Tawheed of Rububiyah. That, even the mushrikeen at the time of the Prophet ﷺ didn't reject. Even they used to admit and accept, yes, Allah is the one who created us, yes, Allah is the one who controls the universe. (coughs) Even they used to accept all of that. But it was then the second type of Tawheed, al The tawheed of singling out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with our actions. What are our actions? Our actions are the worship to Allah. The different types of worship we do, we affirm it is for Allah and we negate it from anybody else. So therefore we make tawheed of our actions to Allah alone. By affirming them to Allah only, doing them for the sake of Allah only, negating that we are doing them for anybody else, or anybody else deserves them, so therefore you make your actions unique and single for Allah, your worship unique and singled out to Allah, that is Tawheed al uluhiyya And that is where the Mushrikeen, they fell short, they did not implement Tawheed al uluhiyah rather they split their worship between Allah and the other deities. The third category of Tawheed that is mentioned, is Tawheed al-Asma wa-Sifat, the names and attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The names and attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that Allah has the most perfect and beautiful of names and attributes, uh, and they are at the pinnacle, they are at the pinnacle of beauty and perfection. And there is nobody else equal to Allah in those names and attributes, nobody else that shares with Allah or participates with Allah in those names and attributes, and that there is no deficiency whatsoever or shortcoming that can be attributed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That in brief is the three categories of Tawheed. This particular book, it deals particularly with the second category Tawheed, Al-Uluhiyya, explaining how we are to make our actions single and unique to Allah alone. How we are to implement Tawheed with regards to our worship and our living with uh, uh, the obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and what are the actions that we need to avoid from magic and talismans and all types of things that would negate and make deficient your Tawheed. So the opening ayah then, that Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab rahimahullah ta'ala mentions, the opening ayah from the Quran, "Qolul Allah Taala" or "Qolil Allah Taala," "Wama Khalak Tul Jinn Insa Illa Liyabdun," that I did not create the jinn or the humans except for them to worship Me. "Wama Khalak Tul Jinn Insa Illa Liyabdun" to be clear, what is the meaning of Tawheed? That Tawheed means the sole worship of Allah. وليس معناه الاقرار بالربوبية بل معناه افراد الله بالعبادة بدليل هذه الآية وغيرها. this ayah straight away proves to us that the objective of our existence here is to single out our worship to Allah and that the meaning of la ilaha illallah isn't just to believe Allah is the creator and the sustainer and the provider and the giver of life and death the meaning of la ilaha illallah and the meaning of tawheed isn't just that. Rather it is that we must then single out all of our worship to Allah. And that's what this ayah tells us straight away. Because Allah says he did not create the jinn or the humans except for us to worship him. For us to single out our worship to Allah. And that is exactly as some of the salaf used to say in the tafsir of this ayah, insa illa li they used to say the salaf, إِلَّا ليوحدون, That Allah did not create the jinn or the humans except for them to worship Him alone upon tawheed. To single out all of their obedience and their worship to Allah alone. That is the purpose of our creation. That is the purpose of our existence. So here Allah mentions in the ayah, al insa," That I did not create the jinn or the humans. The jinn... They are from the creations of Allah, a world, a creation that is unseen to us. عالم عالم it is a creation from the creations of the unseen. نُؤْمِنُ بِهِمْ وَلَكِنَّنَا لَا نراهم. We believe in them even though we don't see them. And that's why they are known as jinn. If you're going to look at the Arabic word again, just like we looked at the word kitab, the word jinn, then this word in Arabic jim and noon, When you have Jim and noon together in Arabic, it has a meaning of concealment. Words in Arabic that combine or come from the root of Jim and noon, then it indicates concealment. So Jinn are by very definition in the Arabic language, something that is concealed. So they are concealed from us and they are not seen to us. And there are other words in the Arabic language that have the same meaning. For example, Jannah, you can say Jannah as an example Paradise, that is concealed from us We do not see that now Janine, the, uh, the embryo, the fetus Within the womb of the mother That in the Arabic language has the Jim and the noon in it Because again that is concealed <coughs> Majannah They call it the shield The shield in Arabic which protects you From the uh, arrows and things coming in That shield again conceals you and it conceals your body. Uh, Majnoon and junoon, the word for somebody who is, as you would say, crazy, or somebody who has his mental faculties impaired, again, that indicates concealment. His mind has been enveloped and engulfed and concealed. His mind is covered. So again, it indicates a meaning of something being hidden. His mind, it is as if it is hidden. It is concealed. He's unable to use it in the proper manner so he is impaired mentally. So in the Arabic language, jim and noon, they indicate things that are concealed. And that's why the jinn are known as the jinn, because they are concealed and we do not see them. Even though they are able to see us, it is mentioned, إِنَّهُ يَرَاكُمْ هُوَ وَقَبِيلُهُ مِنْ حَيْثُ لَا He, the shaitan and his clan, those jinn, the shayateen from the jinn, etc. They see you. فهم من عالم الغيب <coughs> So they are from the creation of the unseen. iman him wajib, And it is obligatory to have iman in them. Whomsoever rejects the existence of the jinn is a kafir. Because then he is rejecting ayat of the Qur'an. The Qur'an tells us about the existence of the jinn. So whomsoever uh, rejects that, then he is lying upon Allah and the messenger and the consensus of the ummah that the jinn, they exist. The shaykh says, as for the people who do reject the jinn, then it is only upon their intellects. They think they are academics, they think they are philosophers, they think they are intellectuals. They say, how could that possibly be? These are fairy stories. These are tales of spirits existing. This is what they say to you. Upon their academic research and their intellectual minds But that is from their foolishness They have rejected and they have not seen the clear ayat Of the Quran That the jinn they exist So even though the shaykh says we don't see them We believe that they exist So Allah says I did not create the jinn or the humans Al-ins Again if you're going to look at the Arabic for al-ins Why are humans called insan, ins? Anybody know? that's one of the meanings of it that ins in Arabic it means when you have sociability there is an aspect of sociability social the social aspect humans do not live in isolation they live in this type of social network and that's what ins in Arabic means one of the meanings of it is that they have this sociability if that is indeed a word but you understand what I mean And this is what in Arabic it indicates, that they have this uh, connection with each other, they have this type of social uh, aspect with each other, and that's what the word ins means. People, humans are by their nature in that way, that they wish to be with others, and it is not from the human nature to want to be isolated alone in a place where there is nobody else, rather it is the way that they are connected and with connections and relations with the people, and that is one of the meanings of ins, insan in Arabic. So Allah says I did not create the jinn or the humans except ليعبدون. إلا ليعبدون. أي يفردوني بالعبادة أو تقول بعبارة أخرى أي ليوحدون. لأن التوحيد والعبادة شيء واحد. So Allah says I did not create the jinn or the humans except for them to worship me and the sheikh says, "You can say the meaning of that is exactly except to worship me upon Tawheed. the obedience upon the uluhiyah, singling out Allah subhanahu wa taala." So then, the sheikh says, "Madama anna Allah subhanahu wa taala So, so long as Allah subhanahu wa taala, Allah created the the humans and the jinn. Allah created them for His worship. فَهَذَا يَدُلُّ عَلَىٰ أَنَّ العبادة هي الأصل. This therefore indicates that the default of this creation of this earth for us being here, the default is, the purpose is, for us to worship Allah. That is the origin, the default of our existence, to worship Allah. That is the asl. And that tawheed that is the core, the foundation of that. That our existence, the core, the foundation, the basis is to worship Allah upon Tawheed. The core of doing that and how we do that is this Aqeedah and this Tawheed. And that is what the Shaykh mentions as the opening ayah in this book. To explain and to clarify to everybody from the very beginning that your objective and your purpose upon this earth is to worship Allah upon Tawheed. And if that is the case... If the case is that you are here to worship Allah upon Tawheed, then without a doubt you are in need of knowing the remainder of the book. You are in need of knowing the aspects of Tawheed and how to worship Allah upon Tawheed. This is what Shaykh bin Baz rahimahullah ta'ala mentioned. He said, if you understand this ayah, that Allah did not create you except to worship him, then you clearly should understand in your mind, that the very next stage, the very next step therefore is, for you to then find out how to worship Allah upon Tawheed. If Allah has told you that's your objective upon this earth, to worship Him upon Tawheed, then your next step is to go and find out how do I worship Allah upon Tawheed in that case, and how do I stay away from shirk in that case. And that's why straight away from that basis, you realize why you need to learn all of these aspects of Tawheed, and why you need to learn all of the aspects of shirk, in order that you can then fulfill your objective upon this earth, of worshipping Allah upon Tawheed, without any aspect of shirk. So that is the opening ayah, and that's where we'll leave it today briefly as the introduction, and from the next session we'll start with this remainder of the introduction in the first chapter, where the shaykh is then going to explain, how this basis of Tawheed that was the basis that all of the prophets and messengers came with. They came with that basis of tawheed to all of their people throughout the ages. Ibrahim alayhi salam, Musa alayhi salam, Isa alayhi salam, everyone, all of the prophets and messengers came with the same message. And that indicates again the importance of it. So that's where we'll begin, inshaAllah ta'ala next week. From that point, you should try to get copies of this book. al Tawheed. If you know Arabic, get the Arabic copies. And if you do not, then in English, uh, perhaps perhaps the best one for you to get currently, since we are going to be majoratively using the explanation of a Sheikh Al Fawzan, is that summarized explanation in English of a Sheikh Al Fawzan. You've seen that print, it's normally in that blue hardback. That blue hardback Kitab al Tawheed, that is a summary of this. This is the full original Arabic. Then there is a summary of this explanation. That summary is what's been translated into English, but it would be a good one to have because that is a summary of exactly this. So what we explain here will be summarized for you in that blue hardback copy. So you'll be able to use that as revision notes and you'll be able to add extra points which are not in the summary that are in the full explanation that we'll mention. So that will be a good basis. You should try to get a copy of that book and that is heavily advised, strongly advised for the one who wants to study seriously for them to get this book. If you're going to spend your wealth upon all types of other things, then spending your wealth upon these books and this knowledge is the best of the affairs. So you should try and get a copy of that book. If you have another copy already, alhamdulillah, it's sufficient. If you don't, then get the copy of a al-Fawzan, and then that can be used as we go throughout these lessons. In fact, when we were in Medina University, al Abdullah al-Bukhari, Hafizahullah ta'ala, he taught uh, Sunan al-Nasa'i in the university. He was our teacher for Sunan al-Nasa'i. The very first day when we came in, he got a piece of paper out and he started doing a register. He said, how many of you have brought with you a copy of Sunan and nasai So a few students put their hands up, the ones who had the copy of Sunan al-Nasa'i with them. The ones who didn't have it, he took their names down. Wrote down their names, he said, next lesson you better bring a copy. I have your names here now, next lesson you better have the book with you. Because otherwise... The knowledge isn't going to be sought like this. A student comes without a book, without anything, doesn't know what's going on, no pad, no paper. So the reality is a person needs to strive. So try your best to get a copy of the book if you're able. Try your best to get that. If you really can't, try to get some sort of PDF with the text of Kitab al Tawheed or something that you can use as a basis to follow along with. So inshallah, we'll continue with that next week. Uh, I think the first question is, you know one of the conditions of combining um your salat if it's raining? Um, some scholars said that the type of rain has to be where your garment is soaked. <coughs> As in, like, if you took the rain and it, water comes out. Oh. Now, what if somebody walked a mile and is spitting, he's going to get going to get really soaked? So what's the actual understanding of this? Um, that's, uh, you know, the scholars, they talk about that, and there are different levels that are mentioned, different quantifications of what level of rain would determine that you can then combine the prayers in the masjid. It's not, it's not really possible to pinpoint it on one thing. And those types of things, like you said, there are there will be differentials. A person who's going to walk only 10 meters to the masjid, it wouldn't have an effect on him. But if somebody's going to walk 2 miles, it would. So those things, they are difficult to quantify. But often it is mentioned by the scholars as a general thing that it's not really just a very light rain. Something that's very light, then that's not really going to impact you. But like you said, if you're at a long distance, it could. So then the ruling could be of differences depending on that too. But generally speaking, it isn't just very light rain, the, the spitting or whatever they say. Not a very light rain. It's got to be something that is actual rain. It's coming down in some significance that it's termed as proper rain. And that's why it's mentioned in those narrations about how their uh, mud used to be on their shoes, etc. And the clothes would be wetened. But that's, it's difficult to quantify one thing. But you have to return back to the books of the scholars to look at the different uh, aspects that they mention in determining how much rain and what uh, signs of how much wetness in the clothes, etc. huh. So no not a'udhu billah was about the, uh, the other stuff like you say Alhamdulillahi, alhamdulillah rabbil Alameen, those kinds of things the praise upon allah the praise upon the messenger not the a'udhu billah some no, scholars say it's only best to say that when you read in the qur'an but normal books is special to just say this before that part no in the Isti'adah, it's mentioned when you recite the qur'an then you begin with the Isti'adah. a'udhu billahi minash shaitani rrajim but in the books here, it's not mentioned. Here, that that was never mentioned. Yeah. Here, it's just the Bismillah, and then uh, the aspect of saying the praise upon Allah, and the Messenger, etc. But even that, like we said in some texts of the book, it's there even. And if it wasn't, the Shaykh says the Bismillah would be sufficient and suffice anyway. sorry, just one last question. Ah. How do you make dry ablution? How do you actually do it? I mean, <coughs> yeah, because I've read it, but <coughs> what is actually... to do do it? Doing it? Tayammu Who's going to demonstrate so, Ah, Somebody there um, yeah, Come here on the table do it they, they How do you do Tayammu You get your hands uh-huh. and then, um, like, When it's like dust
1: on the floor uh-huh. You do this uh-huh.
0: You first wash your hands And then like you wash your face wash your, What are you going to wash your face with? Water. Like the, do- um, the dust uh-huh. So you put your hand on the dust and then, you, um, then do it on your hands and then, you wash your face. and then do it on your face That can be sufficient as a Tayammu That can be sufficient like that as a Tayammu uh, hit the hands up on the ground Then uh, do the hands And then do the face And that's it That's sufficient as one type of tayammum As is mentioned in the books There's uh, If you want details of that as well though, More details of all the ahadith And the narrations It's there in Bulugh al-Maram And the audio is available We did it at Kitab al-Tahara uh, And the chapter of tayammum With all the various narrations Because some narrations mention Hitting the ground twice Some narrations mention Hitting the ground once And then they mention about The hands and the face and all, It's all mentioned in the various Narrations of the hadith but there's a chapter, the chapter of tamum. it's available in Bulugh al-Maram, the audio, we did it as well. So there's no number of times, like the three times? No, that, times like that, three times the stuff isn't mentioned. I'm not aware of that. Uh, as long as you wipe over, that's sufficient. Uh, for the Taymum is sufficient. So mm. what if someone's in hospital, they're ill? They can't find yeah, those they're scholars, they have talk about those things as well then. About, uh, uh, some of them saying absolute necessity then just uh, from the wall and things, but other scholars say there's nothing there, there's no dust upon the wall. The ayah to talk about Sa'eed, something which has dust on it, something which has uh, some fragments on it. But there are fatah of the scholars in those kinds of situations. If, uh, In the worst case scenario, if there was nothing you could do, you're bedridden, your injuries are such that you can't get off the hospital bed, it's some type of uh, breakage or whatever, you can't move off your bed. And there's nobody to aid you and uh, bring you water, nothing. Then you do what you can, you still have to pray. You pray upon your state, you do the best you're able to do and you pray. You still do what you do and you pray. Okay, we'll leave it there. We'll carry on next week then, insha'Allah.